Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and Don Fifield of the Guardian. News just in: a fascinating Champions League draw sends Jurgen Klopp back to Germany to face Bayern Munich. Spurs have a tough task against Dortmund, but City should have little trouble with Schalke. United play PSG. I suppose the question is, John, will Jose Mourinho be their manager in mid-Feb? Well, I have to say, it is a debating point because how, how much worse can it get? I think, I think he will be. And I think the very fact is that basically what's keeping him in a job at the moment is the fact that he's in the Champions League knockout stages. Because I think that Man United will make a decision, I think, and have a decision to make when they are a out of the running for the top four, but also, I think, coupled with that, because it's hard to see them, let's be honest, making next season's Champions League on that, but also when they're out of this season's Champions League. And so that draw has not done him any favours whatsoever. I mean, the, the negativity, the overwhelming negativity coming out of Old Trafford at the moment must be inhibiting, I think, for the team, the squad. And let's be honest, Mourinho is doing very, very little to lift the mood. I mean, you know, that shows in the performances, that shows in some of the players that he's leaving on the bench with Pogba, for example. But the Champions League, let's be clear about this, that is the barometer by which I think that Mourinho is judged. As long as they're in the top four, I think he stays in a job. They're not. As long as they're in that competition, he stays in a job. So I do think that this you cannot underestimate the size of this game for Mourinho. And let's be honest, they would be ranked outsiders on form right now. Yeah, you've got a, you've got a fancy PSG in this one, haven't you? Yeah, the whole thought of Neymar and Mbappe and even Cavani running at that United defence at the moment is fairly terrifying. That's a dreadful draw. I mean, Mourinho has he's had good and bad moments against PSG with Chelsea over the years, the new PSG, I mean. But this is a daunting task. I mean, he, that you, so when, you, when an English club draws PSG, the one thing that sort of bolsters them is the fact that PSG aren't tested on a weekly basis in Ligue 1. And they, I think they've dropped four points all season in, in, in the top, French top flight. But, but the reality is I don't think United have got A, the confidence, and B, the, possibly the armoury to hurt them at the moment. And then you're sort of relying upon Mourinho doing something old-style Jose tactically to, to stifle PSG, but but with Mbappe and, and Neymar, that's quite a task. Uh, the irony of it all is that if United had dropped into the Europa League and finished third in their, in their Champions League qualifying, they'd probably have a better chance of qualifying for the next season's Champions League. Which, <laughs> I mean, it's got to that stage now. Um, 
And it's, well, it's sad to say, to be honest. Mm. You know, if, if we've got a European theme here, obviously the, the job of a sporting director is, is very well established in Europe. Mm. But even, even in the Premier League, I think it's only four clubs who haven't got a sporting director or the equivalent of, of obviously Manchester United is one. Does that, is that indicative of a club which has almost become complacent and allowed itself to be left behind? Yes. And I also think it's incredibly interesting and telling that we've been talking about this for the best part of a year or so. You know, the debate has obviously been raging, do, do United need one for much longer? But it's been an intense issue and talking point for that period of time, saying that United need one. And yet here we are further down the line and we still haven't, haven't got one. I mean, you know, I think Paul Joyce in The Times wrote a really good piece this weekend sort of highlighting just how much the difference that Michael Edwards has made, for example, at Liverpool, and how much you know envy there must be at Man United for, for someone who has been so creative with some deals, you know, with some contracts and some transfers. And United just don't have that. I mean, you, you know, you look at Everton, Everton have sort of re-entered the market with brands, for example, and then therefore they have someone who's got an overall picture. And it makes me think, if this has been a debating point for so long, why hasn't it been resolved? And you have to say that I would, I would argue that some of it must revolve around the, lo the, the long-term uncertainty surrounding the manager. Because in an ideal world, you would choose a sporting director or a director of football who works independently on his own, he's good enough to carry off that role. But similarly, a lot of other clubs feel that it's some, something that's got to be in tandem with the manager. And if you don't quite know, the manager and his long-term prospects, then maybe it's not the best time to appoint a sporting director with the, with the manager, let's be honest, and his future up in limbo. Yeah, you, you saw Mourinho at, at Chelsea, you know, very, very close, Dom. Um, what was his relationship like with Michael Emanalo, you know, who's obviously left? I think it was relatively functional. I think his relationship with Avram Grant back in the day was probably <laughs> far more dysfunctional. <laughs> I think, he, I mean, he, look, he reluctantly accepted that he wasn't going to um, have complete say on all transfers. Um, but he did influence heavily the first team players that came into the, the squad. I mean, talking largely second, second time round at Chelsea. I remember the end of his first season, he'd sort of gone through with Samuel Eto and Fernando Torres and Demba Barr as his three strikers. And from January onwards, he was starting to make noises about, no, we can't, we can't have this. We can't, we can't go on like this. We're not going to achieve anything with these, this level of striker. Um, and he worked in tandem with Michael Emanalo and Jorge Mendes to get uh, you know, Diego Costa over the line that summer. Um, and and you know, and Keir Jarabchin was involved as well. I mean, Chelsea's a strange club in as much as it works with very particular agents at any one time to get what they want as the first team squad and what the head coach would want as well. With United, hindsight's wonderful, isn't it? But had they appointed a sporting director going into Sir Alex Ferguson's last season. None of this might have happened. I mean, they could have, they might have adjusted better to life after Sir Alex. But I think just because of the peculiarities of somebody who'd been at the club for so long and achieved so much and was all powerful there, as soon as he left, it left the void and they've attempted to plug it as best they can. They've now got a manager in place who ideally would like not to be working with a sporting director, but football's moved on. Mm. You need that. Yeah. Jürgen Klopp 
works within the system, although he's mm. the dominant personality within the football club. You know, that defeat of Manchester United pretty much summed up where both of those clubs are. What will this draw tell us about Liverpool? Liverpool by Munich has got a fantastic ring about it, hasn't it? It, it has. Uh, what I would argue is right now, I mean, it's difficult to predict because Bayern Munich have still got some wonderful players, but, you know, they're not having a, a vintage season by any means. And the way that the sort of the conceded goals and were taken apart a little bit in the Champions League group stages, and thinking particularly with Ajax, for example, mm. makes you think they're incredibly vulnerable. And I think that Klopp will have a fantastic insight in exactly what, what, what kind of, you know, Bayern's strengths and weaknesses are. And I think he will relish this because he had such, you know, rivalries um, when he was Dortmund manager, didn't he, the, with Bayern, you know, going right to the Champions League final, of course. And, you know, he will, he will love this tie. I think that any team right now will not want to be facing Liverpool in the form and the rampant energy that they're showing. I think that they, they, they will feel that, that Liverpool would be favourites in this. We shouldn't knock their pedigree either because even though Bayern are superpower, Liverpool were beaten finalists the year just gone. And basically, the atmosphere and spirit at Anfield can blow opponents away. It really can. It can be overwhelming. It does It does galvanise people there, doesn't it? The, oh, absolutely. The yeah. God, I, always got, I mean, I was lucky enough to be covering Liverpool for six, seven years. Um, two Champions League finals in that time, um, 05 and 07. And I remember the Olympiacos game, the noise, Anfield Olympiacos game, when they, they had to win by two clear goals and with one nil down at half-time. Month three one in the in stoppage time at the end, an astonishing atmosphere. Then you went through the you know the Juventus match, the Chelsea games. They were incredible, incredible nights at Anfield. It's, it, it comes with the romance. But look, look, Klopp went through his Dortmund days as the underdogs against Bayern Munich, and did brilliantly well. Won a league, competed with them. He'll go into this tie as favourites. Liverpool will will be favourites going into that that match against Bayern Munich, and and that really tells you quite a lot about the progress that Klopp has instigated at Liverpool. Mm. You, you saw Andrew Robertson a couple of weeks mm. ago, John. Uh, it was interesting that Mourinho <laughs> sort of cited him as an example of, yeah. of how and why United were overrun at uh, Anfield at the weekend. He's absolutely fitted in there perfectly, isn't he? Oh, it's just absolutely fantastic. He epitomises what a, what a manager would want in a player. So basically, it was pretty un, unspectacular signing. He was even laughing that basically, you know, kind of in a summer, I arrived in a summer when Mo Salah arrived. So basically, when I didn't get straight in the team, no one really noticed, to be honest. <laughs> and yet you notice him now, right? Because his energy and his power down that left-hand side is phenomenal. I mean, Mourinho was sort of kind of, you know, referring to that, that energy and making him even feel tired. I mean, that's some compliment, really, because Mourinho's not always the best loser, let's be honest. Mm. And so um, to highlight the, the form and the performance of an outstanding player. But he's just a brilliant outlet. He's, he's improved defensively. He's a fantastic story in that, basically, he's improved so much on his crossing, I think. He came in from Hull, got rejected from Celtic for being too small at 15. He's had these knockbacks in his time. He never, ever gives up. And he's come from, you know, sort of setback after setback, relegated with Hull. Next thing, he's at Liverpool. And he's just absolutely sensational. He, he grasped that opportunity when injuries sort of gave him the way in just over almost exactly, you know, 12 months ago. And he's just never looked back. It's now difficult to imagine a Liverpool team without Robertson at left back. He has got all the qualities, I think, in my view, to be a Liverpool legend and also be a Liverpool captain 
of the future because he's got real leadership qualities. Fantastic. Mm. Right? Another intriguing in ties, the Spurs, Borussia Dortmund. We'll look, we'll look at Spurs maybe a little bit later if, if we could, but Dortmund. I remember talking to um, an analyst about two years ago where he said, the manager you've got to look out for in Europe is Lucien Favre. His underlying stats are amazing and he'll get a big club at some stage. He's doing brilliantly at Dortmund. I think, well, they're seven points ahead in the, in the Bundesliga. Spurs couldn't have had a harder task here, could they? Yeah, it's really tough. That's really tough. The father um, was at Nice for a while, wasn't he? Yeah. And, and did quite well. I spoke to Jean-Michel Serri about, about him a few months back and he was, he was talking quite highly of him, in fairness, and Claude Puel at Nice and the impact they both had on that team. A team that was, budgetary-wise, it should have been about 13th or 14th in Ligue 1, but actually finished 4th, 5th, 6th in that sort of region, which is quite an achievement. But he's just got... He's got them ticking. He's got there's there's a rhythm about them at, at Dortmund at the moment. Our focus is always drawn towards Jadon Sancho. I mean, just because it's so refreshing to see a young English talent tearing it up to that extent at a big, you know, a major European power, and what he's achieved in the Bundesliga so far since since going over from City, really since since January time in, in this calendar year, is something else. He's added goals to his game now as well, but. And, and in fairness, he's he's eclipsing someone like Pulisic, who who is being tipped as a sixty million pound player for some reason, and, and and you know coming coming to England, well, Sancho is keeping him out of the side effectively um, over there, or certainly taking the the limelight off Pulisic. So it's it's a really tough one. A lot of a lot of pace, a lot of power about that team, and much will depend upon what what state Spurs are in going into that into that tie. And you know, are they still in contention for for the Premier League? Are they still in safely ensconced in the top four? I mean, they should be in the top four, but they may have dropped away possibly from the top two by then. In which case, can they concentrate on on getting past Dortmund? Yeah, and continuing the the German theme, mm. John. Uh, City have got Schalke. Schalke decent defence, can't score basically. Mm. You should think that City would be all right there. I, I honestly, I looked at the possible draws for City um, sort of last night and basically I thought Schalke was the most favourable. So, you know, I, I do think that they should beat Schalke at the moment. And that's not, in no way snobbish about sort of German football because, you know, you've got some really strong teams there and sort of Dortmund, that I, I would, you know, argue probably just ahead of Spurs as sort of favourites. But I just think City being the position that they are in now, absolutely dominant in English football as compared to, you know, sort of the status of Schalke right now. You'd have to make Guardiola's men absolute strong favourites for that one. I, I can only see him reaching the quarterfinals again. Mm. And as a sort of a summary, really, the last couple of ties which stand out to me: Atletico, Juventus, mm. you know, Ronaldo going back to, mm. to Madrid, uh, and Leon Barcelona. Yeah, Leon have got a lot of very good, talented young players who, who shone against City in the group stage. But you look at them, and I suspect, I mean, this will, Barcelona will come through this tie, but. Leon could, you know, could make a make it difficult for them in in, in France potentially. Uh, so it's, it's another opportunity for the likes of Fekir to to mm. show what they can do to showcase and and, and some of their their younger talent as well. But yeah, uh, the one that Atletico Juventus, it, I don't think, don't suppose there'll be a lot of goals. It could be quite dour, but I just wonder whether that's the type of occasion and tie that Ronaldo just shines in and 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 edges edges the Italian club through. So, John, now for something completely different, League Cup quarterfinals. I suppose that begs the question, can City, who are at Leicester on Tuesday, win four trophies? I think they can, yes. I think 
Whether they will or not is, is, is the bigger question. I do think that basically last season, the sheer number of games weighed Pep Guardiola's side down. I mean, listen, I, I tipped Liverpool for the title before before the start of the season and, and that's <laughs> it's looking quite good now. But I have to say, I, I just think I've been blown away by City and some of their performances. When they hit the heights, I still think they are probably the best team in the Premier League and will take some stopping. It's a question of whether they can balance that whole Champions League demands. Obviously, we're just about to run into the FA Cup as well. But having won it last season... I just get the feeling sometimes Pep Guardiola will sort of kind of seize upon that and say, look, this is the challenge for some of those fringe players because he does test, tend to rest and rotate through that competition. Mm. We all know about the depth of, of quality that they have, some of the outstanding youngsters that they have. And I think it's a challenge that I think he'll, he'll be desperate, I think, to um, you, you know, really take up. I, I would make them favourites to go through against Leicester. And once you're into the semi-finals, then then I do think no one would want to face City. Mm, yeah, Pep's been talking about Phil Foden as a diamond. We don't see it very often, do we, that diamond? Do you think he'll? this is the sort of competition that he can actually blood him in? Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is an opportunity for, for Foden, um, fresh from his nice new long-term contract. Um, and, uh, you know, he'll, he will get more game time over time. But, yeah, we, we're desperate to sort of see more of him. On the pitch, maybe Diaz as well might get a run out. De Bruyne is the one who, who needs the, the mm. time on the pitch, so I'd expect him to to play some part. Leicester's a difficult one, um, in as much as obviously the circumstances around the club, you have to give them a lot of leeway with mm. with their performances of late. And they actually went through quite a long unbeaten run without winning many games, but they they were unbeaten for a while. The last few performances have been pretty poor. I mean, desperate at, at Palace at the weekend. And maybe maybe this will get their juices flowing. Maybe it's a sort of occasion they'll, they'll rise for. But I just wonder whether if, if, if the situation had been different with what happened at Leicester City with, with the chairman, I wonder whether Claude Puel's job might be under more scrutiny at the moment. He's obviously got them through a difficult period, so you want to give yeah, him the and, time. And let's be honest, it's a special case, isn't it? Absolutely, completely, completely. But they, they look like a team that should be finishing comfortably in the top ten. And I think some of the performances of late have sort of tailed off a bit. But, you know, as you say, you give them leeway. It must be emotionally draining what they've been through. Maybe that's sort of built up over time. They just hit a wall, which is understandable. Mm. With City, I think the, the sort of frightening thing about watching at the moment, you're actually seeing players play themselves into form. You know, mm. Gabriel Jesus was a really good case in point at the weekend. That's where the squad depth comes in, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. And it's, it's sort of a big opportunity. I mean, bearing in mind, obviously, you're seeing Aguero now back to maybe fitness and, and sort of kind of back pushing for, for a starting place. Because you see Gabriel Jesus at Watford a couple of weeks ago wasn't quite there and basically just needed those extra games. Now, in a normal case, he just wouldn't get that at City, wouldn't get that luxury, would he, really? Mm. But he looked so sharp and he looked so dynamic in that win over Everton. And all of a sudden, you are getting that, that opportunity. They have got this incredible rich depth of player, you know, City. City evolve, I think, as a team, don't they? I mean, signing Mares in the summer, we wondered sort of kind of where Mares was going to fit in. You know, and Sane then has a difficult start to the season and he's playing back into form. You know, Sterling has come through an incredible sort of last 10 days or so again to shine. And they've got so many options in so many different areas. Mm. And I, th I think that you know, real sort of push for places and competition right throughout. Because you look at it defensively, one area I guess we'd look at is maybe the goalkeeper. But basically, 
you know, defensively they're so strong, you know, midfield, yeah. and every, every aspect is covered. But they've got the power to add, haven't they, Dom? And that's the thing, you know, there's talk about uh, Koulibaly coming in as a centre-half. Well, are we going to get to the stage where, they, you know, they've almost, one, either got too many good players or two, they're going to be too good for the common good? I think you could argue that already. I think they, they probably... They don't need a Koulibaly. I mean, Otamendi thought he had a look in this season and he was one of their best standout players last year. And, and the fact they've got so many good chances... I mean, they're in a situation with Diaz's contract as well where they're, they're, they're worried about losing some of the best talent they've had. They've seen Sancho go off. OK, they've done well with Foden to, to tie him down. But they have to offer some kind of pathway into the first-team setup. If they keep bringing in players, even mid-season, I, I think... The logjam in there will, will start having an effect on, on those youngsters. They, they, they have the clout, you're right. They can go and do what they want in January. They can go and do what they want in the summer. There's no issue in terms of the amount of spending they can in, implement. But I think Pep is brighter than that. I think he's actually looking more long-term than that. And I think if he sees talent coming through that deserves an opportunity in the first team, he'd rather go that route than just chucking money at it and bringing players in for players' sake. Mm. Well, and you look at Spurs, for instance, you know, also in, in, in the Champions League, case in point at the weekend with Oliver Skip making his debut, youngest since Gareth Bale in, I think, October 2007. With Pochettino in charge, the thing that you're talking about, the principle you're talking about, Dom, does apply at Spurs, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it was amazing last week, I was in Barcelona to see them play in the new camp and he put in Carl Walker-Peters and okay we could talk all day about kind of the Carl Walker-Peters mistake in the build-up to Dembele's goal but what he said about him beforehand um, Pochettino was the thing that really caught my attention and which was basically saying we believe in this player whatever happens tomorrow night he's going to be one for the future I believe in him he's got such a great future it must make the player feel 10 feet tall knowing that the, you know if mistake comes which it did that basically that doesn't mean his, his Spurs career is over. And it gives a player confidence to go out and play. You know, I know that they, you know, speaking to people behind the scenes at Spurs, they've got a lot of promise and hope for Skip in particular. And, you know, really feel that he, he can go places. But Pochettino just has this way with young players that makes him him the sort of the outstanding sort of coach in Premier League terms of developing young English talent and giving those players that opportunity, but also giving them a confidence. They're not going to be just dipped in and out and not so desperate to kind of make a mark that they inevitably fail because they put almost too much pressure on themselves. Mm. So he makes those players feel relaxed. They know that their, their chances will come over and over again under Pochettino. I don't mean it's in any disrespect to either club, but are Tottenham almost like the anti-City, the mirror image of them in terms of, you know, they've created a team, I think the, the net transfer spent something like 29 million over three or four years. You've got a manager who trusts youth, You've got infrastructure being looked at, training ground, new stadium. I think it might be a bit simplistic to say, you know, the antithesis of everything that's been mm. done because Pep Guardiola does trust youth as well. I mean, he's, he does play younger players. Mm. Um, and both managers make players better on the training yeah, ground. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, in that respect, you have to, yeah, that was absolutely right. Pochettino has improved all the players that he's worked with. They they have worked within their budgets. Pochettino has worked within the budgets of the club. The, the club is looking forward to going into the new arena. 
maybe once that is established and they're there and installed there, then, then they will be able to operate in a slightly different sphere in, in the transfer market, potentially when the you know, match day revenues have gone up, they'll be offer, able to offer more wages to more players. Obviously, we know they're stellar players at the moment um, well uh, now, but I think that's, that there's a sort of long-term vision in that. The City, after that first season under Pep Guardiola, realised that they, to achieve what he wanted to achieve, they needed to spend big. They spent £200 million in the summer of 2017 and that created this team which blew everybody away last year. And they progressed on from that. Spurs could be in that position, but in a few years' time. I think it's a big season for Spurs because I think Pochettino has proved himself to be one of the outstanding managers in Europe. And I just feel... I think there are going to be two obvious vacancies next summer. Yeah. Real, Madrid. Real Madrid, Manchester United. And I would imagine that Pochettino will be top of their both of those clubs' lists. Mm. And I think that, that basically, even though he signed a new contract, five-year contract for a lot of money, big contract at Spurs, over eight, eight million a season, um, Pochettino last summer, I still feel that Spurs will be bracing themselves for a lot of interest in their manager. Mm. I think it will go back to this age-old question, can one of those superpowers appoint a manager who's yet to win a trophy? And I get that, but those clubs see what he's done as a modern manager in progressing a club, in progressing players, embracing the young talent, playing a certain very attractive, stylish way. Mm. But I would also argue that it's important that for Pochettino and, the, and his players' sake to win something this season. Because if you don't have that kind of focal point of silverware, how do you keep those players motivated and interested you know, moving forward? I, I do think it's an issue for some of those players. They're not going to win the Premier League. No. I think they're Champions League outsiders, rank outsiders, let's be honest. So, you know, does he put, pick a strong team against I would. Arsenal? I, I, I really would. He probably would. won't, will he? No, he won't. He'll rest and rotate. Yeah. But I would also think he'll probably match up with Arsenal. Although I would argue that Tottenham, if you look at what they've done, it's slightly stronger than what Arsenal, you know, mm. sort of their backup team. Will the be. defeat though in the Premier League and all the, you know, attendant, you know, North London's red and all that stuff that came out, <laughs> do you think that will push him? Well, it into, might do, into... but he's probably more level-headed than that, to be honest. He won't go with his emotions. I, I worry that he might go too pragmatic and pick a, a much weakened team with, a, with an eye on the weekend. I, I think he should go out and try and win this competition with his strongest team, just to get that monkey off his back just just you know he's he'll have won a trophy okay it's the league cup and then we'll all turn around and say you've only won the league cup but it's better than winning nothing i mean it's it's still we always go back to to Mourinho's first trophy in english football that was the league cup wasn't it the win over yeah. liverpool and and it sort of paved the way the players got used to winning things and uh, sort of the mentality of the football club got raised as a result so uh, i'd like him to go but i suspect he won't let his his heart rule his head and he'll he'll end up playing a more pragmatic team with a view to the weekend fixture. Mm -hmm. How urgently do Spurs need to get out of Wembley? Oh, <laughs> I mean, it can't come soon enough. have to queue up enough, the tube like everybody else. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's... I love Wembley because of childhood memories and kind of... you go Love or loved? <laughs> loved. Mm. And I, honestly, the more I think about it, the more I cannot believe that the Wembley sale didn't go through, by the way. What an mm. absolute gift that would have been if someone's prepared to make a, a £1 billion deal, because that's what it is, you know, after the, the, the actual sale of the stadium, plus the, the value of the Club Wembley business, for example, give that away just to be leaseholders, basically, of a shell, of a stadium. I mean, it's just ridiculous. That stadium will need serious upgrading, 
the transport links already look horribly, horribly badly placed. Pitch is terrible. Pitch is terrible. Fans don't like going there. They'll suffer it once or twice a season. Of course they will, because they associate going there with winning silverware. You know, as I always thought, associate it with, with big England games or, or basically going there to watch a spectacular final. You don't want to go there week in, week out. And I just feel so sorry for Spurs fans because they kind of get, get all this stick for not going to games. Well, they didn't sign up for this when they bought the season ticket. I think certain lessons could be learned, you know, from Spurs' point of view about kind of... I know it's only sort of kind of token ideas, but look at what Leicester did under, under their, their wonderful deceased now chairman. You know, just giving tokens for a pint of beer or a pie. Things, mm. silly things like that. Just keep the fans on side with what it's the club is doing. They're going to have an amazing home. Just it is. And no, 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 don't fans. get me wrong, Dom. I do think that basically, I mean, listen, I don't live a million miles away from the new ground and I'm so passionate about where they stay. So yeah. please don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's a vote, vote of faith in the local community. Absolutely. Yeah. But all I mean to say is what I think Spurs should have done from the off was saying it's going to be two years. Yeah. And basically, once you've done that, I think well, the Spurs PR, right? fans... The, the, PR's Spurs been, fans. the PR's been yeah, terrible. Spurs fans, I think... No transparency. No, absolutely. I think, I think that's yeah. an issue. But I think Spurs fans will think, OK, a bit of short... They um, don't. Pain. Well, they're, they're, they're annoyed at the moment. Give it, give it, give it two more years, three more years. Hope so. They'll, mm. they'll, they'll forget this. It's interesting. Stuff's beginning to filter out. You know, obviously, there was that sort of promotional event at the stadium at the weekend. What sort of feedback are you getting from that? Honestly, I, I, I know someone who went and basically said it's absolutely fantastic. And I've been to the ground recently just not to see the outside. And honestly, it's like a spaceship coming from outer <laughs> space. It looks fantastic. And I think it's great that they've stayed in that area. You know, because it is a downtrodden, underdeveloped, underprivileged area of, of London. One of the worst areas of London, make no mistakes about that, uh, in terms of it, you know, being impoverished. And I think it's great that they've stayed in the area. It can transform that particular part of London. And I, I just think in two or three years, we will long have forgotten this Wembley farce. But I just think it's been... I just think a better idea would have said it's going to take us two years to build one of the best, if not the best, stadium in Europe. Mm. Bear with us. And they would have done that. But the kind of the farce about the, the sort of the elongated second season, yeah. that, that's the thing that's yeah. tough to swallow. But this stadium will be sensational. OK, let's look at Arsenal, Dom, if we may. Lost the unbeaten record at Southampton. One or two you know, mitigating factors, you know, you had... Jacker at centre half yeah. alongside, um, you know, Koscielny who's been out for what six months. Yeah, yeah. What do we read into that performance? And is it just one of those things where you know the law of averages evened out? Yeah, I think so. I, I, it's going to sound ridiculous, but I do think that of all unbeaten runs, a 22-match unbeaten run, it was probably one of the least convincing unbeaten runs. Fantastic that Unai Emery was able to instigate that um, and to maintain it as long as he did. But there have been signs over that run where, they, where they've been straining to keep afloat. And look, I think everybody is impressed with the impact that he's made already. But everybody also, including himself, really realistic about where Arsenal are. I'd say they're probably one place higher than they thought they would be. They probably thought they'd be beneath, beneath Manchester United in the table. Fifth place at the moment feels progressive. Mm. OK, they got, they got done at the weekend and it's... It's, he must have be infuriated that he lost to a team that don't win at home and have struggled for goals all season. But then you look at the 
the three headers that were scored, um, and that was just because they had such a makeshift back line with players who were semi-fit, players who were playing out of position. It's almost understandable and forgivable that that happened. Um, they will look at it as a missed opportunity, obviously, because Southampton were potentially there for the taking. But the circumstances around it, new, new manager in charge and, and, and the fact that Arsenal were so depleted, you know, get over that, move on. They've got a chance in midweek to put that, put that right. If they beat Tottenham, the support base will be happy and, and, and in fact, they'll be ecstatic. Do you think they've got a chance, Arsenal? Against Tottenham? Yeah, I, d I do, but I, d I think it's a bit of a lottery, this one, because I don't think either side is going to put out a completely full-strength team. It's a really interesting dynamic for Arsenal because on the back of a defeat, I do think that maybe maybe thinks, may, makes Arsenal think, oh, should we, should we take this one a little bit more seriously because if top four's slipping away... And once you kind of lose focus of those games and maybe sort of change your focus a little bit. I think that's when danger creeps in. You know, they've got a crowded fixture schedule as well, haven't they? Because it's mm. Wednesday night, then then obviously Burnley at, at the weekend, the early game. And it's, I think there's a bit of balancing act because those, the, I think some of those players, he trains them hard, by the way, Emery. Mm. Works them hard. And I'm not being critical, but it's just, I think sometimes you've seen at various stretch points during that, that run, particularly obviously on, on Sunday at Southampton, when they're struggling for players, struggling for bodies, particularly sort of amid suspensions perhaps, then I think you can maybe see that sort of fatigue creep in when players perhaps need that rest. And I think he, it, the progress he's made has been absolutely remarkable, um, Emery. I just think it's way beyond you know, what was expected. But, I mean, he'll make himself a god if they can beat Spurs twice in a row, but I do think it's a big ask. Yeah. What about Chelsea, Dom? You watched Hazard. Scored his first goal since October. He looks to me to be a player who's almost on permanent audition for the big move. Is that right? I think he'll go to Real Madrid. Um, permanent, I don't think he needs to audition anymore. He's, he's found it difficult of late. And I think he, he benefited on Sunday from an uncharacteristically tentative performance from, from Brighton for the, through the first 60 minutes. When they, I think Chelsea potentially were there for the taking. If, if Brighton had started the game like they finished it, I mean, it would have been really tight. Uh, but I think that they, they were a bit scarred from maybe what happened last year when Hazard, William and Pedro had just completely run right and cut through them. I think there were, there were flashes of that in that first half. He was irresistible yesterday. I mean, absolutely stunning display as ever. But they did give him the time and, and sort of held off him because they, they obviously remember what he did to them last year. Um, and he, he'll do that against teams of that stature. He'll, he'll do it against most of the teams in the Premier League. It's, you know, we, we want to see him. In fairness, he had two assists against Manchester City the previous week. But, I mean, look, he's a player that isn't comfortable in that number nine position. He's sort of filling in. But unfortunately, he's, he's, now, he's now playing so well in that position, he may end up there for the long term. We're now getting Sarri sort of making those worrying comments about, oh, he could be really important for us in the number nine. Well, he doesn't want to play that. He wants to play on the left. He wants to have the sort of free role he had in the first couple of months mm. of Sarri's tenure. Look, ultimately, I do think he'll probably move on. I, I think it's telling that... Chelsea have made it known to him for ages that there's a contract on the table if he wants to sign it. Mm. He hasn't signed it. You saw Giroud last week, interviewed mm. him. Comes across really well. Give us your impression. Uh, uh, just intelligent, grounded, still pinching himself to be a World Cup winner. 
ambitious still. He talked about still wanting to win the Premier League, which surprised me because he's 32, coming up to the last six months of his contract at Chelsea. To have that level of ambition, having just won the World Cup, I thought was quite striking. Just, I think he'll, I think he'll be remembered fondly by, or certainly be remembered fondly by Arsenal, and I think he will be remembered fondly by by Chelsea when he goes. I think he's he's done a brilliant job in the Premier League, and and quite often not as a first choice striker. I mean, Arsenal, he, 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 there were periods where he was first choice, but generally speaking, he was even competing with Alexis Sanchez for that central role, wasn't he? I mean, yeah, he, he he was he was sort of kind of for the vast majority, he was he was definitely first choice, but. I just think that there was always this question mark over, over basic whether he'd score goals in the big games. But I always thought he was a fantastic character in, in the dressing room. You know, fantastic servant for the club. I mean, he's the most English centre-forward. Mm. <laughs> Mine doesn't come from England. You could ever wish to see, you know, absolutely fantastic, sort of in the air, strong, powerful. He would score goals, decent yeah. tally of basic assists and also goals, much more importantly. You know, it's amazing to think he's only got I, I'd have forgotten that. He's only got six months left. They gave him an 18-month contract. Ooh. I suspect they will. that will be something that gets renewed, given the sort of uncertainty that's hanging over mm. Chelsea and the, in the, and the transfer windows and potential FIFA bans, etc. Mm. It would be crazy to let him go. And he's, he is a player that made it very obvious in the interview that he doesn't want to leave. He loves living in London. He likes the sort of family atmosphere that he's, he's found at Chelsea. He liked it at Arsenal as well. Do you think there's any disappointment in, in the basic, the fact that, let's be honest, he left Arsenal because he thought yeah. he'd be on the bench? He's left Arsenal's bench for Chelsea's bench. Yeah, I, 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 he's quite realistic about the situation he found himself in at the beginning of this season because he came back late after the World mm. Cup. So he was accepting of the fact that Alvaro Morata started the season in the team. I think his frustration will be now that Hazard is playing ahead of both of them as a number nine. Mm. He will see off the challenge of Morata. I think Morata will be sold at some point, probably in the summer, mm. and go back to Spain. Mm. But Giroud would have hoped by then he has been a regular in that starting eleven for the second half of the season. And if he is, he'll score, he'll score 10 goals between January and the end of the season because he is that type of player. Mm. He brings the best out of Hazard as well. We shouldn't mm. be forgetting that, forgotten that that goal yesterday was the first time that Hazard had scored in the Premier League this season without Giroud on the pitch. Mm. Tom, you're a very close observer of, of Chelsea. You mentioned there about the potential uh, UEFA action, possible partial closure of the ground because of the anti-Semitic chanting. Given the nature of the owner, Roman Abramovich being Jewish, what impact has that had or will that have on the football club itself and how damaging could it be? Look, potentially it could be really damaging. I, I don't know whether UEFA will punish Chelsea. There are suggestions that maybe the officials on the pitch didn't hear the chants, but the club were aware of them because the club issued the statement. The club from And to be to fair to them, they've been proactive, haven't oh, they? Oh, absolutely. And the, the, well, that sums up on this issue. Chelsea, have, they, they feel passionately about this from top to bottom at that club. You saw Bruce Buck outside the away end at the Amex Stadium on Sunday, sort of talking to anyone who will talk to him and, and, and basically just reminding people of their responsibilities and sort of the, the world is watching this Chelsea support at the moment. Um, I know that there's a sense of why they're picking on us within that Chelsea support, but the reality is that last week was dismal for, for Chelsea as a, the image of the club. It was absolutely appalling. From the Manchester City game to what happened in Budapest, and I'm talking also about what happened in the city centre at Budapest, away from the ground with the banners uh, and the, the images of which appeared on, on social media. That is damaging, and I don't think Abramovich will put up with it. We've often wondered about 
in recent times about Abramovich and his commitment to Chelsea because of the visa issues and the fact that he's now an Israeli citizen rather than, you know, and he's not spent any time at Chelsea. He's not been to Chelsea this calendar year, as far as I'm aware, to watch a game. This is the type of issue that he feels so passionately about that he will be willing to disassociate himself from the club over it. And, and that has massive, massive implications for Chelsea. The idiots who are singing these songs need to shut up and realise the damage they're doing. There is a, a mood now for open debate. And I think you know, we talked a lot on the show last week about Raheem Sterling and the positive nature of his contribution. Are we at a tipping point for these issues? Well, I think it's good that we're even talking about it because, you know, let's be honest, it's something that kind of maybe happens in an isolated incident and that doesn't, doesn't crop up again. But I do think what I get the impression is that basically people are determined to seize this moment. I think that's a really, really good thing because it's put it in the spotlight and I think Raheem Sterling then using that platform that he had last week to maybe kind of, you know, highlight differences in the media treatment, for example, but then it also kind of makes it a sort of a wider issue, doesn't it? Which I think was also excellent that may, maybe hopefully makes think, fans think twice. Then you've got Raheem Sterling sort of being the front of a very thought-provoking Nike campaign. Then you've got the Premier League sort of effectively issuing this sort of guidelines about kind of almost... Let's be honest here, shop a racist, isn't it? You know, in conjunction with, with kick it out. And I think it's it's the fact that they're trying to sort of kind of seize on this opportunity is a good thing. I was worried at sort of at various points last week that almost this weekend just gone was going to go by without some sort of opportunity taken. And I think the fact then that the sort of the Premier League did do something, were proactive. It was interesting that they announced it on Friday afternoon bearing in mind what had happened Thursday night, albeit in a different competition. Mm. But they're obviously aware and acutely aware and that basically I think it would have been embarrassing not to do anything. And I think football must learn quickly, you know, sort of lessons about this. Because we're not just talking about kind of racist abuse. I see the hate sort of kind of etched on some of those fans that give opposition players abuse. I mean, really? You know, mm. it's just like they're in the entertainment business and it's just on every level... It's abhorrent, and so hopefully, mm. I do think that this feels like a moment in time, and it feels like a really important moment in time. Yeah, well, I think the debate is passionate and it's insightful, but we've got to draw this to a close. I suppose we better get back to where we began with the Champions League draw. Simple question to finish with: Who's, who's your winner? Well, Manchester City are the bookies' favourites, and I'd have to say you never know quite how it's how it's going to shape up. But I just feel that they've got the best opportunity of not just the Premier League teams, but I look across Europe and who, who are they up against, who are the best teams from the foreign countries. I think they could overcome Juventus, who are arguably the best team out of Italy. Barcelona the same. Real Madrid, obviously, you know, the holders. But I think City are better than all of those superpowers. So I, I would say Man City, for me, would be my, my choices as favourites. Dom? Yeah, I'd go City, but I think Juventus would push them really, really hard. Well, let's face it, City bought Pep in to win the Champions League. It's payback time. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money. 